Hello there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Few who've tried it would dispute the fact that salmon fishing can be one of the most expensive, least rewarded and most frustrating aspects of UK freshwater fishing. Yet like golf, it remains one of those must-be-seen-to-be-doing pursuits given patronage by some people who could quite easily afford to and would perhaps be even better rewarded by casting the baits, flies and lures at other species. And therein lies a very real problem. Because predicting whether river conditions might fall exactly right for a costly top beat slot, which due to angler pressure needs to be booked a very long time in advance, is a very inexact science. As a result, it's not unknown, certainly on the better rivers or beats, and at the supposed best times of year, for those who can afford it, and believe me, it doesn't take many, to tie up several locations at the same time, in the hope that one should peak within a particular time window. As for the others, well, they remain paid for, but unfished, which has the knock-on effect of helping keep prices high, and attendance by the less well-heeled, but nonetheless still genuine salmon enthusiasts law. With me today is salmon angler James Pinder, who I know has strong opinions on a number of political and perception issues. So why don't we kick things off with your views on wasteful multi-beat bookings, depriving real salmon anglers of fishing opportunities? Well, I'm a little bit surprised that it happens, having never personally come across it as as a salmon angler. I would have thought that if that occurs, then it would be simple enough to have a rule that if you don't turn up then somebody else gets it. If there are regular offenders then I would have thought the gillies and the fishery owners would cotton on to what's going on pretty quickly and do something about it. I suspect it to be a small problem, very irritating for those who would want to go on the beat but can't, but I would suspect it to be a small problem, not least you'd need a pretty good catchment if you'll excuse the pun, to do that sort of thing. I mean, if the D on the North Esk and the South Esk get rain in the same catchment, they're all going to be flooded. So somebody, if they do that, is going to have to, you know, beat one beat in Sutherland and another in Cromarty, whatever. <laughs> I think they've got severe logistical problems to actually do it. If they do, then it's not on, I think, to monopolise anything like that. I've been very lucky... I've been fishing on some very nice beats of some very nice rivers, but I, I don't recall an instance of somebody booking it and, and not turning up. Well, no, I do, but they've not turned up for good reasons. You know, they've had some incident at home or broken their leg or something. Fair enough. So, if people do that, then it's hardly sportsmanlike. But as I say, at the risk of labouring the point, I find it. I guess it would be something of um something of a small problem, but how prevalent it is, I do not know. Perception, as I hinted earlier, is another area I know that you have strong views on. So what is it then that is so wrong with the image salmon angling either portrays or is striving to portray of itself, and what do you suggest could be done to improve things? I think there are two factors here. One is that, not just salmon angling of course, but angling is regarded by the antis as a blood sport, It's inevitable that having, so they may perceive, succeeded in fox hunting and succeeded in hare coursing, they're going to have a pop at angling. They will do that partly from reasons of cowardice because if you have a go at shooting and you suddenly run out of wood 
with your baseball bat or pickaxe handle and face a line of men with guns and dogs, you're a little bit <laughs> quite literally outgunned, but a lone angler is easy prey, although in fairness the more extreme elements of the Antis haven't manifested themselves for quite a while. But it is perceived as a blood sport, and the world, because of political correctness or whatever you want to call it, is getting more cuddly and more caring, and the difficulty we have, we've always had this, but it's more acute now, is the traditional view that animals are something of a cross between Walt Disney and Beatrix Potter, and they're not. They're very basic forms of existence, and fish, so I believe, doesn't quite feel pain in the same way that we do. But even if it did, fishing's fishing. So we have this natural tendency towards a misplaced idea of how nice we've got to be to the world. And the problem, of course, is that we're reacting to it. Instead of standing up to it, I think, we're actually condoning it. And there's the great debate about barbless hooks. You can argue all day about barbless hooks. I actually don't think they make any difference whatever to the damage of a fish. I think the skill is not so much a hook with a barb or without one, it's how good you are at unhooking. And with forceps and all these lovely unhooking tools you've got these days, there is no reason why you shouldn't use a barbed hook. I've had people say that they've used barbless and lost no more fish. I've had people say that they've used barbless and lost more fish. I don't know. All I know is I prefer barbed hooks and I prefer doubles and trebles. And I don't think there's any fish I've put back that's ever suffered as a result of that. I don't believe fish mortality or fish injury is a consequence of a hook barbed or not. So we have that. Then we have, you see it in the fishing magazines, you see it in the fishing books. You'll see a picture of some guy with a big fish, as you'd expect in a fishing book. And always you've got something like, of course the fish was speedily returned. I actually feel like having a photo of me with a fish and saying, of course it was knocked on the head and I ate it. Because, because I like fishing, I like eating the fish I catch. I'll give you an example. This season, I have caught something like 15 or 16 salmon. I have kept one. Partly because of the fishery rules, but partly because I only want one. And the danger with imposing rules on people who are being perfectly conservation-minded is that it creates the opposite effect the one intended. A cat might be perfectly happy sitting where it is, but as soon as you grab its tail and say it's got to stop there, it wants to go somewhere else. And I don't understand why the compulsory element of fishing, knotless nets, good idea. If you can take a fish, restrict it to one or two, good idea. Restrict it to cocks in the autumn, good idea. All those things are very positive although I wonder about that because this year at least I've seen only henfish I don't know to all the cocks that's another issue perhaps so yes let's be conservation minded yes let's be careful with our angling but let's not go overboard to show how lovely and cuddly we are to please the antis or quite honestly for fear of them you know we should stand up for our sport yes it's a blood sport yes we do kill them sometimes it's just the way it is so 
a lot of positive steps in care for fish and care for fisheries, but a lot of very retrograde steps in just going too far about it. Adding to those comments is the way in which fishing magazines will not now use any pictures showing fish on gaffs or even being posed with so much as a speck of blood in shot. Also, why don't more anglers, myself included, use circle hooks for more of the fishing? They really can make disgorging so much easier. I've seen these. I've seen them, I believe they're very popular in worming these days. I'm not so sure they're adapted terribly well to fly fishing, but... I don't recall many instances of the fly being swallowed. It happens. Not that often. And even with the, the dexterous use of forceps, you can soon get it out. So in that type of hook, if you're doing something like worming, I would tend to agree with you because it, it does make sense. Because a worm naturally is far more likely to be swallowed than a fly or a spinner is. So yes on that. I take your point entirely with the flies. But worming, as you rightly say, is a different matter. That said, when I interviewed Bill Briggs, who is a worming expert, though he wanted to use circle hooks, he couldn't find them in sizes small enough, which is something I must admit I haven't seen either. The ones I use are probably way too big for fresh water, but in the right sizes they most certainly would work, particularly with running fish where the bend of the hook acts like a runner on a sledge, until of course it reaches the scissor, where for the first time it can turn and take a hold. Anyway, enough of that. Let's move on. If, as you queried earlier over the ratio of henfish to cocks, there is a problem with declining salmon population numbers, is restricting anglers with conservation legislation, such as catch restrictions, necessarily the best way forward? It goes back to my earlier point that one volunteer is better than ten press men, and I think that I don't know of any angler that is a fishmonger. Now, there are those, um, and there are the poachers, and there always will be, and making the law more tight isn't going to stop them. Yet salmon runs are declining, but are they declining, or have they reached a level, and will they improve? They've been up and down over the past, well, say over the past 100 years, presumably since records have been kept. And there's less of everything in the world these days, we know that with less of every fish but you can take some rivers where they just seem to be disappearing let's say for example the Cumbrian Derwent now that that flood two years ago I suspected a lot of damage to the reds and to the young fish and to the eggs and the general consensus and my own experience confirms this is that there's precious few salmon in the Derwent this year however if you take the Ribble a little bit further down the coast the runs have, touch wood, increased year on year for the past 10 years. My salmon fishing on the Ribble this year, for instance, I went out three times and I got to fish on every occasion. Now, all right, we've had the rain, and I may have been lucky, but for a river like that, it's comparatively unusual. Runs on the Y, I'm told, which was pretty well devastated have improved greatly, I'm told. So it's very much a mixed picture. We all know, thanks largely to a, a very intensive restocking programme, that salmon runs in Iceland, for instance, have actually increased. So mixed picture, and beyond the, the general principle that, yeah, there's less of everything these days, 
I don't think that there is as much of a crisis as people would have you believe. I think there are all sorts of other issues in that, like what salmon farms are doing to stop the wild fisheries and all sorts of things like that, which come into the equation. There's too many seals, too many fish-eating birds, and so on and so forth. So certainly the balance of nature, and because, back to our PC theme again, because seals look prettier than salmon, then they get more votes. So there are things like that which are not only very irritating to the angler, they actually inhibit any real progress when it comes to understanding what we should do to assist the balance of nature. You mentioned there salmon farming. On that subject, I'd like to make a couple of supplementary points here. Are salmon farms necessarily a bad thing for wild fish populations, as escapees are free to dilute and skew the local gene pool, which may, or maybe not, be a bad thing? And what effect might farm salmon production for the table have on those wild fish populations in terms of fish numbers? On the one hand, it potentially takes the pressure off because they are so freely available and much cheaper to buy. But this could also have the effect of pushing up wild fish prices in the way that free-range eggs and organic products do, thereby providing an even greater incentive to netsmen and poachers. Do you have any observations on that? The first question first, the genetic thing, I do believe is important. It's very easy, for example, locally to tell a hodder fish from a ribble fish. And you can do it on any river. Some people, more gifted than I, could actually look at a salmon and give, give a pretty good guess as to which river it's come out of. And I would say the answer to that is quite simple. Get them stripped up at the top, get the hatcheries and farm the genetic pool. That must be the right answer. Sadly, it's not as popular as it used to be and rivers like the Hodder have suffered of cordoning, I think. But what on earth is wrong of collecting them in the spawning streams, stripping them, getting the fry sorted out in the tanks and then putting them back in the river? Nothing wrong with that. Great idea. As far as salmon farms are concerned, mixed picture. I think you're right in that most people are quite happy to eat farmed salmon and because it's cheap, therefore there is less mileage in poaching for the wild ones however anyone who's tasted the two can tell the difference straight away i know which i'd rather eat so there is certainly perhaps a more discreet market for wild fish i think poaching generally has decreased which can only be a good thing but the bad thing particularly in the, uh, the Western Isles and the west coast of Scotland being perhaps the worst examples are one, the sea lice, and two, so they say, the smell is such that the salmon can't smell their own native rivers and don't know where to go back. So there are all these questions, answers which appear obvious to me is don't put the salmon farms near estuaries. But that apparently is too easy a, a, an answer and therefore, for some reason, nobody wants to do it. So there are, I think, obvious ways around the problem. I think we've got to have farmed salmon because if we don't, then the poaching and the netting increases tenfold and it just makes things even worse than they were. I spent a day with a commercial salmon netter on Maloon earlier this year and asked him some of the same questions I'm asking you regarding farmed salmon. His main observation was that the fish he now catches are worth more amongst discerning customers than they would have been had the salmon farmers not been supplying the mass market. There are people out there, he tells me, willing to pay premium prices for wild fish, with all the implied potential problems that that can bring. Yes, I can believe that. 
I can believe that, but only some people. <laughs> and that, I think, is the saving thing. There must be a certain snob element to it. There's certainly a financial element to it. And if, in the old days, before salmon farming, you were selling a salmon, well, it's a salmon. Anybody would have it for tea, and that's fine. Most people, including myself, whilst I prefer wild fish, I'll happily eat farm salmon, because they're nice. <laughs> so, that, yeah, he's probably right. He can get more in perhaps a very different market than 10, 15 years ago for his fish. We looked earlier at how, so far as it's possible to do, if you are willing to spend the money, you can to some extent buy in success through multi-beat bookings. What I'd like to do now is look at another area of buying in success on a plate and explore the role and values of gillies. I have been very, very fortunate in meeting a lot of very, very good gillies, many of whom I'm pleased to call friends. The gilly, on the whole, is much abused creature, in my opinion. His problem is that he will... It's his job. And he knows the river. Just hope... I know I'm a lawyer. I hope I know my air of the law. And if somebody takes advice from me, I expect them to do as they're told. And it's the same in his job. His job is to catch fish every day of the season. And to go in there and disagree with him, you can hardly be surprised if perhaps you don't do as well as otherwise you might. Not saying there isn't scope for argument or consultation, but that's a very different matter. Personally, in the past 20 years, I have only ever met one gilly who I thought was such an obnoxious chap and such a bad gilly. But then again, everyone else thought that as well, and he, he now isn't a gilly, so there's a bad apple in every barrel, so to speak. On the whole, I have a lot of respect for gillies. I like their humour. I like the way they work, I like the way they sort of interact with the anglers. So, 10 out of 10 for gillies, is my conclusion. But is it a prepaid shortcut to success? And if so, does it not then devalue the end result? Well, let's take a few extremes, if you like. You need a gilly on the tay, because you if you out on the boat, you ain't going to catch anything. <laughs> in certain parts of the tay, you can't fish from the bank. So, the answer is, where you need a boat, you need a gilly. The other is, why not? If people, I guess I'm an example, have a lot of work pressure, they only can fish certain times of the year, certain odd days. If I go on a river which I don't know, why on earth should I go for two or three days floundering around when there's a man there who will tell me exactly where to fish, what to fish with? There are other benefits as well. There was a guy up on the uh, Naver. I was there last year, and he gave me a few tips on casting. And as a result of three days with that man gillying, I can probably cast a fly about a third further than I could before. So there are benefits other than just fishing that particular stretch of water which he knows. Well, I'm just playing devil's advocate here and suggesting they might have questionable value. Whenever I fish abroad, due mainly to the investment that takes, I always fish with a guide. Not doing so, for me, isn't money saved. It can turn out that the whole cost of a trip is wasted if going it alone doesn't bring the desired result. But back here in the UK, I would be more reluctant, feeling I should be a little more up to speed on home territory. So should you then not be either failing or succeeding by your own ability? Well, to some extent, even with a ghillie, you still are. And there are people that go fishing with you, there may be four or five people fishing and two or three ghillies, and 
the ability of the ghillie is certainly relevant, but the ability of the angler, the good angler is always going to catch more irrespective of the ghillie. I think also, again, you go to the big rivers, the Tay, the Spey, the Tweed, it's all we're all saying, well, use your river craft, but you can't. The Tay, in some places, is like five rivers side by side. And you, you could use your river craft, but it'd take you a few years to work out where the fish actually were. I agree in the sense that if you're harling on a river, you're sat in the boat talking, the gillies taking the, the lures over the lies, all you have to do is wait for the fish to hook itself and play it. There are occasions when I've really very much enjoyed that, but more for the crack and the chat with the gillie than the angling school. Well, OK, you may argue that unless you do that, you're not going to catch anything. I remember was up on the Tay about three years ago, and in one big pool, I was out in the boat harling, We'd one guy on worm, two guys on spinner, and one guy on fly. There were two fish caught that afternoon, both by us from the boat. And, all right, it wasn't me that caught them at all, it was Gilly that caught them. <laughs> but um, the water was such that somebody from the bank couldn't possibly have got there. And you, you couldn't have fly fished it or spun it in the conventional sense anyway, it was too deep. As far as home waters are concerned, we've a Gilly up there on the Derwent and he's been very useful yes it's a small river and it doesn't take a genius to work out where the fish lie but sometimes you're wrong sometimes they lie in places which you just wouldn't believe and why not a bit of help it's and you know you could look on the wider area well it gives somebody a job who otherwise wouldn't have one and in the countryside that's something to be treasured i think and he does all sorts of other things as well he pulls the logs out of the river, he cuts down the trees, the branches that are too near the river. He, he's got his shooting in the winter, almost invariably, of course, because gillies are inevitably shooting people or beaters as well. So I think he performs a great service for the countryside. He's also effectively the eyes and ears of the anti-poachers. So, you know, he does a lot more than simply teach people how to fish. But I would never really regard fishing and catching a fish with the gillies' assistance, which otherwise I would not have caught, as cheating or somehow taking a shortcut. It somehow never feels like that. So what specifically is the gillies' role? He will tell you where the fish are. He will advise you on how to cast and where to cast. He will, in the case of boats, obviously he's a boatman as well. He will advise you on the right fly. And he's a companion. And the great thing, some of the best jokes, some of the best cracks, some of the best fun I've had has been with gillies, and why not? Fishing should be fun. I'm not saying that's his main function. Of course it's not. <laughs> but it's just nice. And, and what's wrong with just nice? And the, most gillies, as I say, do know what they're doing. They know the river. They know it very well. And um, bit of help, why not? Can we talk now a little bit about your own salmon fishing? Why salmon, how you got into it, and what is the drive that keeps you going? Because it's hardly the easiest or most productive of game fishing pursuits. No, it isn't. I regard myself, and always have been, an all-round angler. I went from course to game for no particular reason, frankly. And I've fished for rainbow trout in lakes, which I would enjoy if I got the chance. I've fished for brown trout in rivers and lakes, which I would also enjoy. And I've fished for grayling, which I enjoy very much. 
and there's the nights and the evenings for sea trout and, uh, and all those things. But the salmon sort of has got hold of me this past few years. It's partly time because I can't fish for everything. And I think also I found that if you concentrate on one fish, you do get better at it because different types of fishing are different sports. I'm fascinated by the fact that it's nothing to do with feeding. I'm fascinated by the fact that for no reason you can gauge suddenly they'll decide to take what you're fishing with on another exactly the same day, same conditions, they won't. I like the size of them, I like the power of them, no two ways about that. It's a big strong fish and oh boy when you've got one on then even one at six or seven pounds you've got to fight on your hands. So what then would you describe as being your regular patch? My regular area, in the sense of my club waters, are the Ribble, the Hodder, the Cumbrian Derwent, very occasionally the Loon, so local rivers. I have been lucky. Well, this year, for instance, I've been up on the Tweed three or four times. That's becoming sort of fairly regular. of a group of friends that fish there. I've been on the Dee in July. That is probably my favourite Scots River. I love the Dee. And uh, I've been there a few years now. I had a, a wonderful trip last year, 2011, to the Naver. It's one of the few occasions, one of the days... I won't say I got fed up of catching salmon, but I was pretty worn out at the end of the day. They all went back <laughs> with barbed hooks, no danger, you know. That, but I just... The fish grips me. And just as some people are gripped by carp or some people are gripped by tench or pike, it's the same sort of thing. But sometimes... You have great difficulty in explaining the attraction of a salmon, even to other anglers. It's the obsessive element, I've got to get that fish. To me, is much great. If I go trout fishing or grayling fishing, I don't catch any. Well, I don't. Which is ironic, because I'm far more likely to. But there's something about that fish that just keeps me going. And what about tactical preferences? Do you prefer to spin, worm, or does it have to be the fly? Or is that choice dictated on the day by prevailing conditions? It's partly dictated by conditions. I have a preference for fly, not because thinking dictates that I should, and somehow it's more sporting, it's nothing of the sort. There's no one method more sporting than another. I have a preference for fly because I believe that in most conditions it's actually the most effective method. I get great enjoyment out of things like spay casting and casting a fly properly. I think that the, the actual, the art of casting, I think is nice and it's a nice thing to learn in its own right. I like the way with fly fishing you can just bung the stuff in the car and go. But, having said that, I wouldn't regard somebody that catches a fish on the fly as more sporting than somebody catches a fish on a spinner. I would say this season... I've probably, of the fish I've caught, it's about half fly, half spinner, and that's probably pretty, pretty usual for me. I don't go worming very much for the simple reason that, again, it's a sort of, right, let's go fishing, you've got to dig the worms. or <laughs> and So, again, it's nothing to do with sportsmanship. I would find worming a little bit dull because you're sat there and there is great skill in making sure it moves along the bottom properly and that's an art and there is even greater skill in knowing exactly where to fish a worm because it requires a lot of pinpoint accuracy 
but I don't do it very much and um, I think also part of the problem is that peculiarly and I know Hugh Falkus used to go on about this worming's only allowed in high water on most beats and in fact it's the only thing you're going to catch him on in very low water and you go in these little pockets between the pools where fish aren't normally and if you're going to catch them in low water that's the only way you're ever going to do it so in my magical fishery which hopefully is waiting for me in heaven uh, I would actually allow worming only in very low water but to get to go back to your original question I like fly fishing because I just do not for snob value not for sporting value I just like it so you're obsessed here then with a fish that can be caught on worms shrimp spinners and flies but it doesn't actually feed in fresh water which sounds to me a bit of a contradiction that's part of the attraction and every angling author has speculated as to why some people think it's the feeding instinct some people think it's aggression I like to think that I mean a salmon is a predator pure and simple and its natural reaction when something small and apparently vulnerable goes across its path is to have a go at it certainly in the seas it's feeding um, I've heard the analogy that it's a bit like chewing gum you know you're not actually eating but you, you still go through the motions and there may be an element of that certainly sometimes it can only be aggression I think perhaps resting salmon or salmon in established lies they see this thing invading their space and they just don't like it curiosity perhaps somebody's pointed out very validly that fish don't have hands and the only way they can ever examine something is by putting it in their mouth again speculate about that in idle moments but when I'm fishing all I'm bothered about is is making sure that it does take the law but I don't know nobody knows and I hope nobody ever will know so here we have a fish that actually doesn't want to feed and an angler wanting to change its mind in the least probable way by going at it using a fly not exactly the best combination the least productive branch of game fishing and allegedly the least productive method well I'd argue with you about it being the least productive method because I think it's the most but it's just that whilst I don't speculate you do actually think why why has it done it if, if you're fishing for carp for pike for trout you know why it's taking it it's hungry it's, it, it, okay it might be annoying but it might in fact take a fly for exactly the same reasons that a salmon does but you'll never know but generally speaking you're fishing for something and you've got a decided advantage because it's got to eat and you're right and the question sort of gives the answer it's just the sheer fascination and, and unanswerable reason a fish has taken the fly I don't know why fish has taken the spinner I don't know why but it has and it does and it's this paradox with the salmon this anomaly with the salmon that it's not like any other fish okay sea trout's the same thing and I do like sea trouting but I can't explain why because the principle's the same I, I've heard all these things about sea trout feeding in fresh water I've never found anything in a, a sea trout's stomach so I don't think they do certainly not in the rivers I fish why then don't I find sea trout fishing equally fascinating and the answer to that question is I haven't a clue I just don't <laughs> I like it I really do like it but not you know if you had to say to me right you've only got a fish for either salmon or sea trout for the rest of your life I'd say salmon 
it's just what I'm comfortable with and it's very difficult isn't it in an interview to try and in an interview to try and give these reasons it's something I can more easy to recognize and to define if that makes any sense and what do you see as fly fishing for salmon's greatest challenges I think the greatest challenges are certainly declining stocks and I think the big problem is what's happening out at sea because you just don't know you know you get a couple of Russian ships hoovering up salmon and and that's a decline in runs or whatever it may be I think also you see a lot of skinny fish coming up these days I'm not sure the food's out there for a lot of them so I think the general marine crisis is the biggest problem I don't think politics is there are too many fishermen and too much money in it generally in the economy to anyone to seriously talk about banning it I think political correctness is a, is a slight factor because you know we'll be it's only a matter of time before we're not allowed to use hooks so I'm a little bit worried about that human beings just more and more pressure although I think there's not as much pressure on angling now I think actually there are probably fewer anglers than there were 20 years ago. A bit sad that, but speaking purely, purely personally for the next few years, you know, selfishly that's not a bad thing. Um, I'm ashamed to say that, but I will say that. But looking rather less selfishly, a lot more people should be going fishing. And, and in fact, they're, they're encouraged by the Environment Agency. The Environment Agency, at least in its word, is a very, very positive force for angling. Like the things like the Mersey, far more clean rivers than ever there were 20 years ago. There's more fish, not necessarily more salmon, but more fish generally to fish for. So it'll come back. And the advantages we've got now, you've got your carbon rods, you've got your lighter, stronger lines, you've got all these things that make a really, really big difference. I mean, I, I grew up with fiberglass rods and... Casting a 15-foot fiberglass salmon fly rod all day is no joke, believe me. How they manage with cane, I have no idea. And carbon's just a delight to use. So, you know, you've got things like that and all these modern fly lines that you can, you can throw further than, than ever you could. So, I like all that. But there's... People, as always, are, 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 can be difficult. I, I take that in the general sense of people wanting to ban angling, people wanting to poke the fingers in if, if God help us if the Scottish Nationalists get in you know they've got this mad idea about the crofters even though there aren't any and so giving the fishing back to the people in some sort of mad socialist ideal I think will be very bad for the fish but these are sort of worries in my darkest moments my real genuine worry is what is happening to the marine ecology and the marine environment because that's where they feed and that's where they've got to come from to come up the rivers again on the subject of declining angler numbers, though not really a direct comparison, I'm a member of a small boat fishing club on the Fylde Coast, and when I first started back in the 1970s, we had three clubs with 70 more member boats in each, plus people launching themselves from the beach. On a good tide in winter, you'd struggle even to find a spot to anchor up in, but these days, unfortunately, you would struggle to see even a dozen other boats. But there are still fish. For me, the problem lies in the fact that young people just don't want to do outside things anymore, preferring to live in the bedrooms communicating with each other by computer. There's also a cost element too. 
Small boat fishing, and salmon fishing for that matter, fall into a similar category to motorcycling, in that it's middle-aged or older people with disposable incomes these days who are the only ones who can afford to do it anymore. I would agree with every word of that, particularly the change in, in people just not going out anymore. Young people don't go out anymore. Goodness sake, my son's a fine example of that. And he plays rugby, he goes out, but nothing like I did. The cost is a lot of the problem. I'd hate to think somebody didn't go fishing for anything, salmon or not, because they thought they couldn't afford it. I think that's a very bad reason, because in fact you can. A lot of it's cheaper than you think. I am lucky, and I'm quite happy to say, in some of my salmon fishing in Scotland, I pay quite a lot. And 20 years ago, I simply couldn't have paid quite a lot. But I still fished 20 years ago for salmon in rivers. And, you know, you can, if you look at magazines like the Trout and Salmon, you'll see bargain offers to fish the Upper Tweed in October and November. You know, if you want to do it cheaply, you can. And even if you take famous beats like the Junction, if there are enough of you, and you divvy up between you, these things can be done. I think it's the perception that they can't that's the big problem in that area. But I agree with you that the greater problem is that just what people do has changed. And not for the better. No. Final question. What do you see as the future for salmon angling in the UK? I think the future's very much better than people think, or very much better than the pessimists think. At every level... Everyone, even governments, realise that there's a lot of money in this. And not just money, it's local economies. Imagine, if there was no salmon fishing, what the economy of, say, Kelso would be like. It would be appalling. (laughs) Um, The pubs, the hotels, the people who work in the countryside, the shops, it would just collapse. Granted, on Spay, whatever place you want to mention, there's plenty of places like that, and on various different levels as well. So I think that the economic factors actually are quite a driving force. Now, will those economic factors make salmon fishing prohibitive? No, they won't, because if it's too expensive, nobody's going to go. <laughs> so, And it's not a question of being able to afford it. If you have to pay so much in oh, July compared with, say, what you used to pay in October and November on the Tweed, for example, then you're just not going to do it. And so there is, you know, the richest man in the world will still think of value for money before he commits himself to, to fishing on a salmon beach. So I think there's that. I think that if we manage it correctly, and again, the Environment Agency, in fairness to them, have been very impressive in this, salmon fishing and fishing generally are very, very commensurate with today's values about preserving the countryside, about preserving animals. And rapidly, the more sensible people and the less extreme people are realising that hunting and fishing are in fact, paradoxically if you like, a far more benefit to the countryside. The Paul McCartney being photographed with a seal. So, so I think there are a lot of positive elements here because fishermen and and indeed shooters in a different context, actually understand the countryside and are the guardians of it. In fact, I think fishermen being the guardians of the rivers is a phrase used by the Environment Agency. So, quite hopeful, with things to sort out, 
lots of pluses, lots of minuses, but I think that the future for salmon fishing should be good, or should be no worse, at its bleakest. Um, you know, if we go about it correctly, then we can make it very, very good. But were those arguments, albeit to a lesser extent, not also in place when certain aspects of hunting came under the legislative cosh? Why then won't they be equally ineffective with salmon fishing? I think there's a danger of them being eroded. But the problem is, firstly, far fewer people went shooting and went fox hunting. Fox hunters are not a political force. I mean, the irony is that fox hunts are more popular than ever. And if, if you believe that people are actually chasing a, a bag that's being dragged around, then you're living in cloud cuckoo land. We all know the reality. It's being ignored and the prosecutions are few and far between, and the convictions are even fewer and further between. Tony Blair has actually admitted and is on record as saying, it was a bad mistake, I wish I hadn't done it. But if you have the pubs, the hotels, the gillies, the tackle shops, the fishery owners, the people who go fishing, you're probably talking all in all of five or six million people here. Are they going to really lie down and die if fishing's banned or, or if it's severely curtailed no and i don't care if the force the voting force the political force is real or if it's imaginary as long as the government thinks it's there that's fine by me so fishing as a pursuit then is safe nothing's safe if you did a list of, of countryside pursuits of hunting pursuits then i think it's probably safer than many and long may it remain so I hope so. And that's the way to wind up an interview. Plenty for the listener to chew over, maybe disagree with in places, but overall hopefully feel heartened by and less sensitive about it when it comes to telling other people what we do and why we do it. We shouldn't need to feel as though we have to cozy up to defend what actually doesn't need defending. My thanks then to James for laying his position on the line here for us, in no uncertain terms. <laughs>